Hey everyone, Griffin Schiller here, back with another interview, and this time I had the privilege of speaking with John Wick director Chad Stahelski about the franchise's third installment, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Not only is Chad a fantastic guy, but his extensive work as a stunt performer and coordinator have allowed him to direct some of the most impressive action films of the decade in the John Wick series. Chad and I discussed the creative process for conceptualizing the action, the challenges and choreographing with animals, the visual aesthetic of the Wick films, and he gives updates on his Highlander reboot, Matrix 4, and much more. It was such an insightful interview, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So, here is my conversation with Chad Stahelski. Congrats on the film, first of all. I absolutely loved it. It's, I honestly, God, I think it might be my favorite out of the three you've made thus far, so... um. Oh yeah. my God! Really? Yeah, that's, I that's I, cool. I really do. Yeah, seriously. I mean, you you guys just you continuously push the envelope in terms of you know inventive action, and yeah, by some miracle you managed to outdo yourselves with every entry. <laughs> um, so I, I'm you. I'm curious about that that creative process. You, you know, where where does how do you start conceptualizing some of the action for these films, and especially yeah. in Parabellum? Um, good question. Um. Honestly, I, I wish there was some process that I could tell you was this magical place that I go to and find the stuff. It's 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 based on inspiration. I assure you. Um, you know, part of it has been I've been doing martial arts since I was ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I love martial arts. I love all different styles. I'm not into what works or what doesn't. I love you know Japanese jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, kickboxing. I love wushu. I love the acrobatic stuff. I love the combat stuff. I love the competition stuff. So I I, I studied a lot of them. And that, that's a lot of inspiration right there. Um, I love Asian cinema. I love Japanese anime. I love, you know, action movies from pretty much every country out there. So that's always an influence. Um, and I, I like taking uh, a lot that I learned from dance choreographers, everybody from Bob Fosse to Curtis Baird to, you know, old Buster Keaton, the silent movie guys, um, you know, Danny Kay. And, and anything I can really grasp for is a bit of an inspiration. Um, mixed in with, like, what I consider a touch of reality, um, you know, people keep talking to us about how we, how we, you know, did all this done stuff with gun firearms. I mean, hey, you know, we like to take a little credit on how we combine some of the grappling arts with, with firearm and tactical weapons work. But, you know, it, it wasn't our idea to do, uh, reloads and show that guns run out of bullets. I mean, that, that's reality. <laughs> you know, we just chose to show it. I mean, you gotta remember 95% of what everyone knows about gun fights is from film. And, about 94% of what films do are, are incorrect, you know? Right. It's just easy to shoot and know what's reality. Um, I'm sure at some point you've stolen one of mom's fake knives and tried to throw it into a tree, right? Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing nine out of ten times it's bounced back and either hit you in the head or go off to the side. It's done everything but stick in. So, you know, but then you watch an action movie and all of a sudden somebody that's never picked up a knife before, picks up a knife, throws it, and it sticks in perfectly, especially you know, deep enough to, to cause a kill or, or around the corner, it you know, just sticks perfectly wherever the guy throws it. Um, I've been throwing nine since I was like four, and still, I'm 50-50 at best, you know, <laughs> until you learn the distance. Uh-huh. So we thought that would be fun, you know, having John Wick and the guys start throwing these knives and under pressure, like, oh, just get it out there, just, you know, have a snowball play with knives, and like every third or fourth knife will stick in. And then once John Wick finds the right range, he, he, he nails it and gets right in there, but... You know, and that's where we get these ideas from. You know, we we always try to subvert, 
you know, if you want to use a really tall guy, you find a big open space. We're like, oh, we use a really tall guy in a really tight space. And we use, you know, shorter opponents for big open spaces. And, you know, we're running those stable, but we just won't run around the horses to ride them. We'll use them to, as an actual weapon or an offen- uh, offensive weapon to the, uh, you know, to the bad guys. So we just kind of, you know, take already, you know, established or done ideas and kind of twist them on their head a little bit. And use our experience in, in martial arts and choreography and camera angles to try and make it, you know, a little bit different, a little bit more original than what you that you that you're used to seeing. Um, other thing, I, I love architecture. I love, you know, uh, you know, I love the Met. I love op- operas. I love theaters. I love museums. I love libraries. And you know, more interesting street corners are like maze-like structures, like catacombs, like we did in number two. Um, I love glass. I love reflect, reflections from mirrors, so more water surfaces. So we try to do a lot of incorporate, you know, architectural themes into our choreography as well. So I guess to answer your question, it's, it's a lot of a little. You know, it's a lot of little influences that spark ideas and inspirations that kind of mesh with the, you know, the, the 30 to 40 years we have in, in martial arts and action choreography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've, I mean, you just you answered a lot of the questions I had right out the gate, so that's amazing. But um, you know, you you mentioned um how how you were a big fan of like uh you know classic martial arts cinema growing up, and and I couldn't help but feel mm-hmm. that this particular John Wick felt very remini- reminiscent of those films, especially with um how you really honed in on the hand to hand combat, probably more so than the previous two films. With like mm-hmm. you know, the first film was really you know focusing in on gun fu. John Wick two, you took it a step further and you layered in some vehicles and it seemed like in each film it was important for the action to kind of reflect the character's journey so for you how does the action in Parabellum reflect John's circumstance in the film well uh, you know you always look you know we call it the theater of pain you want your lead character to suffer and you have to find out the interesting ways to make him suffer you also want him to persevere and you want him to triumph you know initially over his shortcomings so the choreography kind of reflects where John is, you know. You want to see him fight his way through all the different assassins. Um, the first movie, it was more about just, you know, it's a guy coming out of retirement, so we didn't want to do too much hand-to-hand. We wanted to do more of the gun work and see what it's really about. Two, we want to show his proudness with the vehicles and a little bit more hand-to-hand, but again, more about the tactical sense that he uses firearms. This one, we wanted to show Wick in full Bobby Yeager mode and what John Wick was most likely uh, apt to do in the days before before the first movie started. And you remember, it's also it's a five-year journey, so as a human being, Keanu's gotten, you know, incredibly better at, at, at choreography, even more than he was in the first film, his tactical groundwork. And, like, he's just, as, as a performer, gotten much, much better in the martial art uh, choreography. So we could push him, we could do more, we could show more, and show his suffering and show his, his trials over many different opponents where... The first movie we used a lot of we call red shirts or generic bad guys. This mm-hmm. one we got to have some specific characters that offered more of a challenge than just faceless guys. You know, bulletproof ghost recon guys, Bobon in the library, Chip Chip and Yeon, some of the best, you know, uh, Japanese and Chinese stunt guys we could find for the antique store. You know, all, all the different cast members for uh, you know for the motorcycle sequence. You know, we just tried to to really mix it up to show one John's you know breadth of of talent and two. You know how John, no matter how many times he gets knocked down, he still perseveres in himself. Yeah, no, I and absolutely, you def, definitely get a sense of that. But you you were kind of talking about how um, 
the action in this film really challenges Keanu, I guess, because of how yeah how, how much better he's gotten at doing the choreography. And and I think the one you know there I mean there's several pieces that that blew my mind in this film, but the one that stuck uh, that has stuck with me is. John and Sophia and her dogs escaping the treasury, which I, I'm sure is a lot of people's favorites coming out of the film. And, you know, there's so many moving parts, tracking shots. There's obviously intricate choreography going on. You're working with animals. I'm wondering if you might be able to walk me through tackling that particular sequence, you know, what some of the challenges <laughs> were and what excited you the most about it. Um, I'll go part B first. The thing that excited me the most about it was just um, like we changed gun work, like we changed some of the ways you do some of the hand-to-hand stuff. I love, I love dogs. There's two dogs that are my, you know, basically my, unfortunately, I guess fortunately my life right now. Um, love them to death. And I, uh, I've done a lot of research. I wanted to do something with dogs and number two that we just didn't have the time or didn't quite fit the story yet. Um, and we did a lot of research of what a lot of these animals are capable of doing. And I don't think films even remotely as little as, movie making is touch practical and tactical firearms. They barely scratched the surface of what what uh, some of the great dog and animal trainers out there can do. So I contacted Andrew Simpson, mm-hmm. who's uh, currently well-known for doing all the wolves on Game of Thrones. Um, uh, Andrew's an incredible individual that just really understands uh, animals and what, what it takes to get that kind of performance out of an animal, both safely and not just physically, but mentally and emotionally for the animal and for the cast members as well. Um, and it takes a lot. It, it's, it's no different than training, you know, an animal that you may have at home, your, your dog or puppy at home. I mean, you know, you got to play catch with him. You got to spend time with him. He's got to bond with you. So we took that same mentality and rather train attack dogs. We wanted to train dogs that, that actually interacted with Hallie, that could interact with our stunt team and thought the jujitsu or the, the action part of it was more playful than actual attack. I mean, uh, up until us, I'm pretty sure that when you see a dog attacking, that's a dog. I mean, the dogs don't know it's a movie. So right. when you see a dog attack, that's a, that's a dog trying to injure a human being. And rather than do that mentality because of how much it, how much it can, uh, there's a lot of risk in that. Mm-hmm. We want to train the dogs and encourage them to be, you know, to play rough, to play rough with our stunt guys and use protective gear that almost, you know, uh, that ensured not only the stunt guy's safety, but the animal's safety as well. We don't want to hurt the dog's teeth or his neck or his jaw or anything like that. We don't want to stunt in the phone on anybody. So, you know, it's a very long process. It took us nearly a year to, to bring that sequence to light. Wow. Just finding the animals that had the physical and mental uh, aptitude that we wanted, the personalities that we needed to bond the stunt team, the camera team, the, the rest of the crew, and, and our cast. Like, Cameron and Hallie had to spend you know, uh, Hallie spent nearly five months, you know, five, six days a week with these animals, two, three hours a day, sometimes just playing with them. The stunt team, the stunt guys on set had to play with them for the next three, four months. The cameraman had to be there for two months just so the dogs that used to the camera team. Mm. You know, you got to think of the dogs are charged up. They don't know how to go half speed. So when the animal was chewed to go, he's fired up. He said, oh, this is my chance, my hand. And they got a turn. Yeah, that's their gig. You know, and you only get so many takes with them. Because, like, just think about throwing the stick to your puppy. He'll go retrieve it three, four times, and on the fifth time, he'll look at you like, ah, fuck off, I already got it. You know what I mean? Like, he's done. <laughs> yeah. You know? <clears throat> so everybody else, when you when you do it, when you did it before, you see, like, the camera, the single shots, the dog running into the spunk, and there's nothing else to show because you don't want to distract the animal from what he's doing. Like, you don't want to give him another target. 
you know, we've got 30 stunt guys in the background. I got Keanu Reeves doing fight scenes in the background. Allie's queuing up the dogs to do that. And not only there's one dog, there's two dogs. So you want the dogs distracting each other, you know, and that doesn't sound like much when you see it, but when you have to logistically put that together step by step by step, you can't just talk to a dog and say, hey, man, get your head together. Just go after this guy. Yeah. The dog's got to feel, you know, he's got to feel, he's got to sense it. And it has to be rehearsed to the point of instinct for the animal. And that literally took us seven months. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of prep went into that and a lot of training. Next to the way I like to shoot is wide and almost in that live performance mode. So you can't have the trainers in the shot. Most of the time when animals are doing a gag, a trick, or hitting a mark, the trainers are either right to the start mark or they're just behind camera cueing the animal. Well, I couldn't have that. Not in every shot like we wanted. So uh, we just rationalized that the best way to do it, well, they're Hallie's dogs, so we're just going to have Hallie be the trainer. So she had to spend extra time with the animals, giving them food, training them, giving them the command. So when she gives a command on the screen, that's her actually giving the command to go to the, to the movie dog. Wow. So, you know, that's a different level. Like having the animal do something non-related to the cast member and just doing it with trainers is one thing having the actual cast member be the trainer on camera and to the animal uh, during the take, that's a whole different level of, of time spent spent rehearsing. Yeah. And that's just the way we had to do it. Wow, that's incredible. Oh, well, and so I would assume that because of the, you know, the limited takes with the animals, you, you know, that, w- that kind of inspired um, some of the tracking shots, I would assume? Yep. Uh, again, we try to show you, and just when you think it's over, we try to show you more to let mm-hmm. you know that we didn't fake it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a milieu with us. Uh, it also puts pressure on my stunt team to go, like, you don't want to be the guy that messes up this long tracking shot with two dogs and 20 stunt guys. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to be that guy that misses his mark. For but sure. Luckily, I, I have a fantastic team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, it, obviously, just based off of that, this sounds like it was probably one of the most uh, challenging action set pieces in the film. Was was it, in fact, the most challenging one? I would say, you know, the dog scene was probably the most... Uh, it needed the most new time to train. Second, we've done the horse sequence. They have Keanu ride the horse with the motorcycles and, and all the stuff going on there. Uh, the dogs were a little bit, I think... Not trickier, it was a bit more challenging, but you know, a close second would have been the horse Moving away from the action, though, for, for a little bit, um, the visual aesthetic across all three films is not only striking, but it kind of, it, it creates such like an atmospheric mood, um, and Parabellum, I think, is arguably the most stylized out of the three. So what mm-hmm. is the most, what, what is the integral piece in crafting the look and feel of a John Wick movie? Um... Honestly, it's, you know, I, I learned a lot working with, with the Wachowskis during all the Matrix trilogy. Uh, you know, a big part of world creation, if you want your audience to kind of dismiss reality and, and I guess, you place a little dis, um, in to, dis, to suspend disbelief and help transport them to the world you're trying to say. A lot of it is, you know, the production design and the ensemble overall of the film. But the two, I mean, most visual elements, obviously, are our production design, the sets, the locations, and then the lighting. How do you light them? What, what are you trying to say with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to create, you know, obviously you can see our influences with Asian cinema, with Japanese anime, and, you know, the, the now very popular video game world. Like, how do you create these other worlds so that you know you're living in New York, but it's a hyper-real version of New York. It's a different kind of reality. Right. Um, and when you have a cinematographer like Dan Lauston, uh, who's known for working a lot with Guillermo del Toro, obviously on Shape of Water, of recent 
recent Academy nominated fame. Um, you know, your world creation is a visual. I want the audience from, from, you know, pretty much, you know, right off the bat to know you're in a different reality. So you're going to see some weird stuff. You're going to see dogs and horses and gun fu and karate and ninjas on motorcycles. I think one of the easiest ways to do that is through lighting. So try and create a palette that seems grounded, but is a little alter reality. And it's also, uh, you know, I've, we've all seen the action movies that are oversaturated and really dark and grim and one steel blue color throughout the movie to make it tough and rough. Yeah. Um, I'd rather have the, the action and what the character does be tough and rough. But I, I want the fantastical world of color and beauty and depth. And, uh, you know, colors say something. Reds are, you know, the more vibrant or more energetic emotions. Blues are the sadder ones, you know. What does gold feel? It feels relaxing, but, uh, you know, ethereal and, you know, bright white when the ballet dancers are going make you feel almost angelic. And, you know, I think to deny action color or beauty is taking away a dimension that you can you know, really shape the world you're trying to deal on. And that's the conversation uh, Dan Laos and I would have. It's like, okay, great. You know, he challenged me all the time. He's like, that's great. You got cool action. You got dancers up there. You got ninjas. That's awesome. What are you trying to say? You know, oh, that's a good point. What do you want the audience to feel? And, you know, obviously excitement and energy and pacing. But he's like, okay, good. Now, how do we suck them in even more? Well, let's give them a pretty color. We want you to almost reach into the screen and feel the colors and taste them and smell them and you're really very involved with the look of the film. And I think that's what kind of separates us just from, you know, an action movie that's trying to be rough and tumble and super serious. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's very neo-noir, which I, I guess is like, you know, mm-hmm. something that you kind of, I, I would assume, you know, having worked with the Wachowskis and whatnot, that was something that you kind of like picked up from them. Oh, very much so. And again, you, you take an upbringing or a film education to, uh, filmmakers like the Wachowskis, and then you combine it with absolutely, I, I think one of, you know, at least in the top five cinematographers active today, you know, Dan Lauston, that that just, I mean, his whole thing is depth. I mean, very rarely will you see a shoot right into a white wall. Right. <laughs> you know, unless, uh, I don't think we ever do that. But he likes, he's showing depth, not only with just a single palette, but with the way he designs his lighting schemes and how he layers, not just colors, but blacks as well. With Dan, it's about not just what you see, it's what you don't see and what you want to see. Mm-hmm. He makes you, with his lighting palette, he make you want to watch the scene, whether it's a dialogue scene, whether it's an action sequence, or whether it's just a still established shot. I think Dan has a... He, he wants you to stare at his work. He wants you to be vested into it. He, it's like a live show. We both want you to stare and appreciate just the frame, not just what's happening in it. And I think that level of commitment to every single setup he does is also what differentiates us. And if you watch it, you know, we watched the original Casablanca over and over and over and over again. I mean, every frame of that movie is just a matter of shadow and, and framing. And it just makes you stare at every piece going, I, I love this. So a lot of neon noir does go into it. And that, that would be the probably the most defining term of what we're trying to do. Yeah, for sure. Well, and kind of keeping in line with, you know, traits of neo-noir, John goes through a bit of like a an identity crisis in order to rediscover a bit of his mm-hmm. humanity in this. Um, and I think it, it speaks to something larger about like the draw to the character. Um, there's like this optimistic hope that somehow John is going to, you know, eventually find peace. And I'm curious, is that yeah. is that in the cards for him? You know, and, and if so, what would that look like going forward with the series? Um. Well, you know, you can see the thematics we deal with, which is 
karma, fate, uh, consequence, um, you know, grief. But I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the line we keep pushing pretty hard in, in Parabellum is consequence. Yeah. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. There is a cost and there's a certain amount of, and these are things that, we, you know, we even joke about in modern day stuff with society today. It's like, you know, take some fucking responsibility for your actions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't pan that one off. And that's, that's a big thing with me and, and just modern day, you know, social bullshit, which is, you know, uh, take responsibility for your actions. It's your choice. If you choose it, deal with it, you know? And, you know, just knowing my opinion on that, you tell me, you, you, you kill three, 400 people, how do you think that's going to work out for you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's... That's why we ended the way we do. I mean, mm. honestly, like, you know, people say, well, you did it as a cliffhanger for number four. I, honestly, I, I, I'm just not that good of a director. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know how else and a movie with a character that's done so much, uh, I guess, on the dark side of existence or human nature, and let this guy ride off into the sunset. Uh, can John ever, at best, find self-forgiveness or absolution? Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe if he does a couple of good deeds and he equalizes out the comic debt that he's absolutely owes the universe. Yeah, but I, I don't think John's going to be a happy guy. You know, I can think he finds moments of levity and, you know start to forgive himself for what he's done by helping others out or adhering to the rules and trying to make some sense of what, what is some total of life is, but is this guy going to get the happy ending? Uh, I don't think that's going to happen for John. I think John's a, uh, you know, a tool of the universe now to, to try and redeem himself, but it, it, it's going to be a long road for John if he wants to do that. Yeah, you know? no, that's yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Rob, before I let you go, I do have a uh, quick just questions on like uh, upcoming projects and whatnot. Last we heard mm-hmm. from you um, regarding the the Highlander film was that you were working on it more as a TV show, and I'm curious if anything has kind of changed on that front. Uh, no, I, I still have. I still would really like to. I mean, uh, Highlander is a tricky project. Um, I think it's an amazing project. It has so much potential. Uh, my main concern is I just don't want to fuck it up <laughs> by rushing <laughs> yeah. off and just trying to nail a feature. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, the studio, the studio that, that the project is currently with is Lionsgate as well. They've gone through some uh, structural changes in, in their corporation, and we've kind of waited for things to settle down. Now there's kind of a new regime there, and uh, I think all involved, they're very, very excited about Trying to trying to figure out the puzzle that is Highlander. We're I would say we're currently in, in in still in development. I was working very hard on it, and then um, all my attention got diverted to John Wick Parabellum. So while I'm still thinking about it, you know, we just we, we put it down for a little bit, and that's uh, probably literally Monday morning. The first thing I'll pick up and start start diving back into and seeing if it's still something that both the studio and I can can kind of crack it and make something that we feel is really special. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, next one, um, the the Matrix Four. I I know you made some uh, comments on it regarding like the Wachowski's involvement, and then I think I, I I'm not entirely sure what happened. I think there was a little bit of backtracking that went on. I was just kind of curious if you could kind of no, clarify. Uh, it's, uh, it. Yeah, I think they. Yeah, I mean, all all I all I was trying to say is uh, I was asked a lot about my experience with them, and you know, there's been rumors floating about for a while about. Uh, whether there is another one and whether what their involvement is. Mm-hmm. Uh, my simple point was like, look, it was such a great experience working with them and it was such a career defining experience both for me 
my partner Dave Leach, for Kiana, for Lawrence, all the people that we still currently stay in contact with, that if, you know, that word, they were such a big influence and they're such fantastic mentors to all of us that if, if, if they were to be involved, there would be filmmakers that I'd go, hey man, I, I would, you know, retire back to action director just to be part of it and help them out or, or lend myself to that project just for the experience of working with them again. I, I think that's that's something. So if they were able to do that, and if that project does come to fruition with them, you know, helming it in, in, in some kind of capacity, I I would be, you know, just, I would feel I, I would owe them and I would like them and I would like my own career to be involved in it somehow. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, I, I do craft service on that movie just to, just to see it all done. <laughs> well, I couldn't blame you. Um, last question for you. Um, Ed Brubaker's uh, Killer Be Killed. Last I heard, you were attached mm-hmm. to that project. Has there been kind of any development yeah. on that one? Yeah, no. They've, they've uh, you know, uh, to the, the writing entity, they passed in a, a, a very cool script. Actually, they passed in two passes of it right now. Uh, there's a very good script now attached to the project. I think it's it's fantastic. I think it's kind of capturing what, what the graphic novel is trying to get across. It's very interesting, and that's again my time is been so limited because of my involvement with Parabellum and, and how the schedule worked out with it. Mm-hmm. That now that's just another project that I, I, I feel very passionate about. It's something I want to stay involved in, and uh, that's something we'd love to bring to the screen. Yeah, absolutely. I, well, I, I'm excited to see you know hopefully Matrix Four, but especially those other two projects. I can't wait to see what you come up with sure. with those. But uh, anyways, uh, thanks so much, Chad, for your time. It was a pleasure talking with of course. you. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it as well. There you have it. That was my interview with director Chad Stahelski. It was amazing listening to him break down some of the film's biggest stunts that I know you all will enjoy when John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum hits theaters on May 17th this Friday. It's one of my favorites of the year, and if you're interested, you can check out my full review of the film over at The Playlist. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Playlist Podcast Network on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts for more interviews such as this, reviews, and much more. Thanks for checking out the interview, and until next time, take care.